Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill building courses for you to choose from because the steps that you choose to take today will help you to love what you do in the future. And that's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking the psychology of money with Morgan Housel. Our guest today is Morgan Housel. Morgan has a degree in economics and started writing about investing 13 years ago. Uh, he is a partner at the Collaborative Fund, which is a venture capital firm that invests in companies that are trying to make the world a better place. Morgan is also a former columnist at The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal, uh, but his work has also been published in Time, USA Today, Business Insider, and he's recently published his book, The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. We're excited to talk about that. So let's go ahead and dive into our discussion today. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So Morgan, uh, Matt and I, we're, we love craft beer. We're drinking a craft beer right now as we speak. And it's something that's important to us that we value now while saving and investing well for the future. So do you have something like that in your life that fits that bill for you? Look, there's no craft beer equivalent because craft beer is something that you would drink on an irregular basis. But let me tell you about something mm -hmm. that I did uh, fairly recently that I would uh, put into this bucket of a splurge that made me so happy. Uh, we bought a new mattress. This sounds Ooh. silly. This sounds trivial. Completely changed our life and is the perfect equivalent of the mattress that we had before uh, we had had for over 10 years. And I thought, look, it's fine. It's it's fine. It's a perfectly fine mattress. There's nothing wrong with it. We sleep just fine. No issue. Until we finally, we have young kids. They wind up in our bed too often at night. So we said, we need to move from a queen to a king size bed. We're going to get a king size uh -huh. bed. Went out and got a nice king. <laughs> Cannot tell you how much of a difference it makes. Life changing. And I kick myself for not doing it sooner. It wasn't necessarily that we didn't do it sooner because it was a cost, because uh, it was too expensive. It was just kind of like, oh, we have this one that works. No problem. Until we went out and splurged, and then it was, what have I been missing for the last 10 years? Huh. I'm so glad I did it. And you spent a third of your life there, right? <laughs> so it, it, is, <laughs> it is something worth putting some money into. Right, right. When, when, when you phrase it that way, when it's a third of your life, it's ridiculous. You, you should be spending tens of thousands of dollars on a mattress. It, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we don't have to, but yeah, it, it wouldn't <laughs> right. be unreasonable. Time right. to start a new company. Uh, Joel, you recently <laughs> moved to like one of those foam mattresses as well and didn't like you kind of swapped it out because you yeah, like hurt your back on it or something. Oh, what, was gosh. The, what was the deal with that? I, I bought like a $100 foam mattress and, and you, you, don't, cheap. Want, you don't want to go that cheap. <laughs> yeah, I, I ended up hurting yeah. my back like the first day. Sold 
sold it on Facebook Marketplace and made my money back, and then got one from Costco. So it's it's a tough thing. It's like it, like you said, it's we spent a third of our lives in there, but we don't spend that much time thinking about it. Yeah. And I'm even a person. I travel a lot pre-COVID. I would travel all the time, so I slept in hundreds of hotels beds, and I never really noticed that much of a difference. Maybe because I'd only sleep on it for a night or two. But when it's you're mm. sleeping on a bad mattress or just an okay mattress night after night after night for years, it really starts to add up. Yeah, for sure. I hear you. Well, so kind of piggybacking on uh, our physical bodies. Yeah, uh, you've mentioned before uh, that you walk a good bit. You know, like you walk, uh, you do a good bit of thinking that way, and that's a huge part of your job as a writer. Do you find that that kind of clears your head, or you know, like like do you, do you do this on a regular basis, or maybe do you you know step outside and go for a walk, like when maybe you're stuck on a topic or, or something like that? How does that how does that actually play out in your life? It's definitely regular. It's at least twice a day. Well, no, I I, I would say. It's at least once a day, often two, sometimes three times a day that I get out and walk. And for me, and it's not just me, there's actually a lot of scientific research on this, legitimate research. It shows when people walk, their brain works differently. Because when you're sitting at your desk, your brain can kind of shut off because there's no threats in front of you. You're not going to trip over a curb. You don't have to watch mm. out for the cars coming. Your brain just kind of shuts down. And therefore, the amount of just getting your getting the gears moving in your head for creative thinking, thinking about a topic, also kind of slows down with it. Whereas when you're walking, you're just engaged. You said you're, you're watching out for the traffic, you're listening to the birds, you're smelling the wind, you're making sure you don't trip, you're making sure you're looking at the bikes coming towards you, et cetera. And it yeah. just, it's a level of engagement that keeps you going. So for me as a writer, this has always been the case for me, but I think it's true for a lot of people that I do the majority of my quote unquote writing when I'm walking. And I t I'll, I'll take notes. Sometimes I'll send myself emails when I'm writing. And a lot of times if I can't figure something out in an article or, 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 or when I was writing the book, I would go for a walk for a 10, 15 minute walk, not that long and figure it out. And that's when it starts to come. And it, it, that's when it comes. So for me, it's not just a physical thing. I mean, that's part of it. I I'm so antsy anyways, that I have a hard time sitting down for long just because I get, I get <laughs> fidgety. So I, I got to get up and move, but it's also just a good mental exercise as well. It's physical and a mental exercise. So that's why I love doing it and recommend more people try it. Are you one of those weirdos that counts your steps or no? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I haven't, you know, it counts in your phone automatically. And once in a while, I'll go back and look, but I'm not obsessed with it now. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, your book, Morgan. And uh, on why you chose to write the book, you said the biggest uh, realization I've had about investing is that it is not the study of finance. It's a study of people, how people behave with money. The right. gap that we see between knowledge and results doesn't exist in any other field. So how you behave is more important than what you know. Why is that? I think what's important is that, look, you can be the smartest financial mind in the world. You can have a PhD in finance from Harvard. You can know all the equations, all the statistics, all the charts. You can come across as how we generally think of what intelligence is. You can check all those boxes. But if you do not have a good relationship with greed and fear, or you are not able to take a true long-term mindset, if you or if you lose your cool when the world is falling apart, like in March of 2020 this year, when when COVID you know really came it came into our minds, or in 2008 during the financial crisis, if you can't keep your cool doing those periods, then none of the analytical intelligence that you had matters. So the behavioral part is important because it can neutralize all of the intelligence that you have that sits above it. So if there's like a pyramid, a hierarchy of financial skills, behavior is the base of the pyramid. And nothing above that matters until you've mastered it. Uh, and I, I think there aren't many other fields that are like that. There are a lot of fields like, look, if you're a, if you're an engineer or something, then it's just the analytical intelligence that you have. But engineering is not emotional in the way that finance is. I think if there's one field that is a, that is somewhat equivalent to uh, to finance in that in, in in that regard, it's medicine and health, where you can be. Look, I I I, I used to know this doctor many years ago who was a doctor, very educated, uh, knew a lot about medicine, of course, like he, he's a doctor, and he was extremely overweight and he smoked. And I think that's mm -hmm. the equivalent of people who can know everything about finance, huh. but if their behaviors get in the way, it doesn't matter. Wow. So I think that's, I think medicine is in that as well. And I mean, it, it's even to the extent where if you are, you know, a Harvard trained cardiologist, you are so good at what you do, but you have a terrible bedside manner to the extent that your patients don't trust you or they don't come back to you, then again, your education, your intelligence doesn't necessarily matter if you haven't mastered the behavioral aspect of your field. So that's true in finance as well. Yeah. So, I mean, in addition to, to, to that, you know, like how do, how do you feel that our own history, how, do, how does that come to bear on our behavior and, and how it is that we handle our money? 
I think what's important about our history is that we all have different backgrounds, everyone, particularly from generation to generation, uh, people who grew up during the Great Depression versus people who you know, were in Europe during World War II versus the, the millennials who grew up with kind of you know, just experiencing 9-11. I remember September 11th was just before my 18th birthday. Uh, right. And in the United States, uh, when, you, when you're a male, you turn 18, you are, you are required to register for the draft. There's not actually a draft anymore, but you have to, they send you a postcard and you sign it and return it. And that was like, a week after September 11th. And I remember that was such a holy crap moment for me. (laughs) Anyways, so like the generational differences of where your life aligns with what the world is doing is really important. And it's different from generation to generation. It's different from country to country. And also just personality wise, my financial goals and what's important to me might be completely different than what's important to you and someone else. So even if you and I are just as informed as one another, and are just as smart as one another, we might come to vastly different conclusions based because we want something different out of life. What we want for our families and what our goals are different, which is just to say there's no one right answer for most financial topics. Uh, Look, in physics and in math, there is one right answer. It's a precise answer. But in finance, I, I think you know to 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 make different uh, different comparisons to other fields, it might be something like dating or or your spouse. Where like, look, what some people want out of a spouse and what is appealing and attractive to them is completely different from other people. There's no one answer for this is what makes a good husband or a good wife. Of course, there are there are common denominators, but it's different for everyone. And I think money is the same. That people, and I think this screws a lot of people up. That people are always looking for the right answer in finance. They're saying, what, what is the rational thing that I should do with my money? What does the textbook tell me I should do? And I think the answer to that question is, no, that's not how you should think about it. You should do what you want to do with it. Of course, there are things you should know and you should be aware of you know, where you're likely to go astray and what you're likely to, to regret in the future. But everyone does a little bit things differently with their money. They spend their money differently. They save differently. They invest differently because they have different goals. Yeah, and, and our own history can have a major impact on how we view risk as well, right? And that's a topic that you cover a lot in the book. Uh, you discuss the in chapter two, you talk about Bill Gates and his best friend Kent and, and how their different outcomes are, are striking. So can you discuss the role of risk and luck in their lives and then maybe how we view and handle our money? So what's interesting about about Bill Gates, and this is uh, this is somewhat well known because Bill has, has talked about this himself several times. Bill Gates went to one of the only schools in the world, one of the only high schools in the world that had a computer, and that was his introduction to computers. Uh, it was the the Lakeside School in Seattle. That was where he found computers. That's where he met Paul Allen. They went on to solve to to found Microsoft. Uh, and Bill Gates has said in no uncertain terms, he said, "Look, if there was no Lakeside, there would be no Microsoft." And now, look, is Bill Gates hardworking? Is he a genius? Is he forward-looking? Was he willing to take risk? Of course, all of those 100%. But was Bill Gates ridiculously, extraordinarily lucky? Yes, because he went to one of the only high schools in the world that had a computer. Now, during that time, to show the other side of, of that equation, when Bill was at Lakeside, his best friend was a guy named Kent. And Kent, by Bill's reckoning, was smarter than Bill, more technologically minded, more business minded. He was like Bill, but just a little bit better. This is this is all according to Bill. And Kent and Bill always assumed that throughout high school, they, they were inseparable friends, that they would go on to college together and they would start a company together. So Kent easily could have been the co-founder of Microsoft. And he may have been the CEO. Kent may have, it, it could have been that Bill Gates was kind of second fiddle to Ken's, uh, to Ken's company. But Kent died in a mountaineering accident in uh, when 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 he was eighteen or 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 nineteen years old. Uh, so here you have Bill had the the good side of luck. He got very lucky by going to Lakeside and discovering computers. Ken had the really sad, tragic, unfortunate side of risk in that he was never able to achieve his dreams because he had this freak accident uh, during his teenage years. Which is just to say that I think luck and risk are kind of the opposite sides of the exact same coin. They're both this idea that there are things that happen in the world that are outside of our control, that have a bigger influence on outcomes than anything that we intentionally do. That's what luck and risk both are. And we think of them as completely different things, like luck and risk. We, we, we really mention those in the same sentence, but I think they're the exact same force just in the opposite direction. Uh, and what's important about this is that as investors, for people dealing with our money, we are very keenly aware of risk. We talk about risk all the time. Risk is like the central topic in investing. And and if you're a professional investor, sometimes they hire risk managers. And if you're a portfolio manager, you adjust your returns for risk, risk adjusted returns. But we never talk about luck in the same way. No one ever reports, no investor reports luck adjusted returns. No one is ever going to hire a luck manager. And a lot of that is because, look, if I claim that you were just lucky, 
I look like a jerk. If, 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 <laughs> if, if, if I were to say, hey, you're really successful, but you just got lucky. I look cynical. I look mean. So no one wants to do that. Few people want to do that. Or if I did something successful myself and I look in the mirror and say, well, I just got lucky. Well, that's hard for me to swallow as well. I don't want to accept that. So even though we know that luck is present in the world and it's a big impact in the world, has a huge impact on results, we tend to sweep it under the rug because it's not very comfortable to talk about either for other people or ourselves. And so I, I think we just have to be a little bit more careful when we are finding role models in the world, particularly in finance, and saying, well, that person got a lot of success, so I should try to do what they did. And a lot of times that is a recipe for disappointment because you cannot replicate what someone else did if that person had any element of luck in their path to success. And the more successful someone is, the higher the chances that luck played a significant role in their outcome. And again, it's, I have to reiterate, it's not to say that people who are successful are not hardworking or are not, you know, didn't make a right decision, didn't take a risk. It's all of those things. Yeah. But, there's, yeah. but there is also an element of luck that is easy to ignore. Yeah, it's a combination of the two. And it's, it's something that we have to yeah, hold, you know, at the same time. I, I, I think it definitely takes a kind of a humble nature or, or kind of posture in order to, you know, to accept that we are lucky in our lives. Yeah. Um, yep. But, you know, like when it comes to investing, like, like, how do we combat this, this problem of like risk perception in our lives? You know, uh, there was a lot of volatility recently in the market, but we've also recently seen an, an almost unending 10 year bull market. And so how can we put those into perspective in, in order to make better investing decisions? One of the things that I think is really important when we're thinking about risk in the economy and for the stock market is rather than having a forecast of what you think it's going to happen, is going to think this happened next, it's much better to just have expectations of what might happen next. Those might seem like similar things, but let me explain the difference. If I were to say, uh, hypothetically, the next recession is going to happen in Q3 2021, that's a forecast, a very specific forecast. But if I were to say, in general, there tend to be about two or three recessions per decade, and we don't know when they're going to come. But in general, we should expect there to be two or three per decade. That's an expectation. Very different from the forecast because I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know where it's going to occur. I don't know how big it's going to be. It's just part of my baseline expectation of what to expect. It's kind of how people, like if you live in California, this is how they think about earthquakes. Everyone in California knows that there will be more earthquakes in the future. They know that some of them will be little, some of them will be huge. But no one knows when it's going to come. No one tries to forecast. No one says, oh, there's going to be a, there's going to be a big earthquake uh, you know, in, on, on December 15th. You just can't do that. So, so rather than that, then people in California just expect there to be earthquakes. And they build their homes expecting them to occur at any point. Their emergency crews train for them to occur at any point. And I think we should think about recessions and bear markets and problems in our own financial lives in the same way. Rather than trying to predict it, just expecting as a baseline scenario of what might come your way. And then that moves you towards rather than you know, trying to predict the next recession so that you can sell your investments ahead of time and get out of stock so you avoid the decline. It pushes you more towards saying, how can I just be durable? And rather than trying to avoid it, how can I just make sure that I can endure whatever comes my way? And I think that is just such a better way to deal with uncertainty in the world rather than fooling ourselves again and again and again, like we do, that we are able to predict what's going to happen next and that we can do some about it and get out before and get back in uh, right at the bottom, which is what we've been fooling ourselves that we can do for ages. This is not anything new. We've always been doing this despite any significant evidence that we're actually capable of doing that. And I think that single point leads to a lot of financial trouble for investors. Mm. Yeah, and we're, we're in a whole lot of uncertainty right now, Morgan. Like, What impact do you think that the pandemic's going to have on a generation of, of young people when it comes to their view of risk and, and then how they approach investing? I think uh, you know, if, if you were to ask me this back in March or April, I would have given you a slightly different answer because back mm. then, I w- what I would have said is something like this. COVID-19 is impacting everyone indiscriminately. Uh, which was true back in March. Basically, the entire economy was shut down except for you know grocery stores. Uh, virtually everyone was 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 in deep trouble, and the stock market was crashing. So whether poor, rich, everyone was getting you know just 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 really scuffed up uh, in March. Now that we are six months ahead of that, we know that's really not the case. And to grossly generalize, but by and large, if you are in the in an upper income group, say if you earn more than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, by and large, the recession for you is over. I'm generalizing, of course. No one hold me. You know, there of course there are exceptions to that, but by and large, <laughs> yeah. the recession is over. Stock market's back at an all time high. Most people in those jobs are able to work from home uh, and keep their businesses going. 
And for people who are earning a lower income, let's say less than $60,000 a year, this is truly the Great Depression, if not worse than anything we've seen during or since the Great Depression. So I think just as we move on in these months, the segregation in terms of how people are doing in the economy has grown so much Mm -hmm. relative to where we were back in March or April. And that's really important because back in March or April, I I would have told you that since it is impacting everyone indiscriminately, that the uh, lessons that we learn from that will be kind of economy-wide and, and, you know, and, and, and really span across all different groups in the economy. Whereas now I think we're going to be left with two separate distinct groups coming out of COVID whenever this ends, however you want to define that. One that is emotionally scarred for life and financially scarred for life. Mm-hmm. That you know, businesses will collapse, that won't be able to be rebuilt. People will go through, will have their retirements destroyed, their savings wiped out, et cetera, et cetera. And then another group of people for whom uh, COVID-19 from an economic perspective was kind of a wild ride for two months that they that they moved on and they really have no discernible impact on their behavior going forward. If there is any kind of society-wide change that I think might come out of this is I think there will, will probably be a higher demand for social safety net than there was before. And that'll be like mm-hmm. a bipartisan, not in any sort of political way. But I mean, we saw this with the CARES Act back in March, the big stimulus package that passed the Senate 96 to zero. Uh, I mean, you, you could hold a vote in the Senate that says, you know, does, does two plus two equal four? And there's going to be at least 10 <laughs> detractors from that. The fact that it was, it was uh, that everyone voted for it, you know, just kind of shows that there is, there is, you know, huge demand when, when things are breaking and things are hitting the fan, then having the federal government step in to backstop the system is, is, is a very bipartisan thing to do. And so things like enhanced unemployment benefits that are now expired, I have a feeling those will come back and will probably be some sort of permanent thing, not $600 a week, but I think there's going to be greater demand. Once people realize that the federal government is capable of really backstopping a lot of the pain of recessions, then anything less than that just seems cruel going forward. So once we kind of experiment with that once, it's very hard to take that back. And I have a feeling that will become sort of a permanent thing that we have. That's great. We appreciate your thoughts there, Morgan. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, after that, we're going to continue to talk about the psychology of money with you. And we'll get to that right after this. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org wisefriend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach. Do. Every single summer, we've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. 
and you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. Spring cleaning is kind of a, an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we're back from the break. We're talking with Morgan Housel. We're talking about the psychology of money. And Morgan, you you write in your book, you say that it's impossible not to be emotional about our money. We've covered some of that already. But you mentioned that we should embrace those flaws. What do you mean by embracing the flaws that we have when it comes to our emotions? I think a lot of it when we're talking about behavioral finance, what a lot of people ask is, how can I overcome my biases? Like It's one thing to point out the biases, but then people ask, okay, what can I do about this? Uh, it took me a while to realize this. Uh, it took me years to realize this, but I've come to the conclusion that no one can overcome most of their financial biases because it's not something that you can just read about in a book or have a conversation with someone and then assume that you fixed it because we're dealing with dopamine and cortisol and these, these hormones that are controlling our behaviors that there's no way that we can just read a book and overcome the influence of dopamine. That's not how people's bodies work. So people are, I think people are just hardwired to think about greed and risk in different terms that they are by and large unable to overcome. And if you accept that, then it makes sense of rather than saying, how can I fix my biases? What you should do is become introspective, try to figure out what your faults are that we all have, and then just accept them and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to invest my money and save my money and have a, a financial strategy that just embraces the flaws that I have. So for example, if you are someone who looks back at yourself and you realize that you panicked in March of 2020 and you panicked in 2008 and you panicked in 2001, whenever the world feels like it's falling apart, you hate it. It feels like it's broken. You can't stand losing money and you sell and you want out. And that's quite a few people who fall into that bucket. I think rather than assuming you can will ever learn your lessons, so to speak, and to assume that you won't do that next time, I think you should just embrace that that's who you are. That maybe you have a lower risk tolerance than you thought you did. And therefore, you should have less of your money in stocks than you may have at one point in your life assumed that, that you could have. Uh, I think doing that is a much more sensible approach than having panicked two or three times in the past and then assuming you've learned your lesson. And what's hard about that is that when the stock market rebounds, like we are, like we're at today, back near or at all-time highs, it gets easy to assume you've learned your lesson because you made your money back. Hey, look, look, the, the stock market fell. I got scared, but hey, it came right back. I've learned my lesson. I won't do that again. It's very difficult to actually try to uh, anticipate how you're going to feel during the heat of the moment when the world is falling apart, like it was back in March. I think most of us, including myself, if you have asked us in January, how would you feel if the stock market fell 35% in three weeks? <laughs> I think most of us would have said, wow, that's big, but that sounds like an opportunity. I can buy more. That sounds like stocks right. are cheap. Let's get in. Uh, but it's very difficult to actually be able to tell yourself 
with foresight and say, how would you feel if the stock market was falling 35% in three weeks? Because we had the greatest pandemic in 100 years, and it looked like we were going back into the Great Depression that was going to ruin the entire world and might kill all of us, including our families. That is something that is much more difficult to anticipate how you're going to feel in the moment. And that is why people are just generally bad at anticipating what they're going to do during risky moments. And then so rather than trying to look forward and assess how you might feel, we should just look back and say, what did I do in the past? Because that's the best guide of what I am likely to do in the future. I like it. Yeah. Creating systems that fit with, yeah, what your tendencies are. Um, your behavior profile. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, Morgan, you, you recently wrote a post where you advise folks to, to save like a pessimist, but to invest like an optimist. You're saying a lot with that simple phrase, but what is it that you actually mean by that? I think it's this idea that there is that getting rich and staying rich are two completely different things. They are different skills that require they're, they're different topics that require different skills. We need to nurture them separately. And getting rich requires, you know, taking a risk and being optimistic about the future, investing for the long run, understanding that people are going to solve problems and that and, and that and that businesses will will create profits that will accrue to shareholder that will accrue to shareholders. It's this long-term optimism. But staying rich requires kind of pessimism about the short run. You need to be able to put up with all the ups and downs that are that are guaranteed to come our way. And if you look at history, I mean, history is a nonstop continuous chain of setbacks and disappointments and recessions and bear markets and pandemics and terrorist attacks. There's always something going on uh, that is getting in people's way. And in order to do well over the long term, you have to be a long-term optimist. You have to invest like an optimist, but you have to save like a pessimist. Those things seem like they're contradictory, but they're not. But they're not. They work together. Uh, you, you know, compounding works in the long run, so that's where you need to invest. But being able to uh, enjoy the long run and get to the long run, you need to be able to survive the short run. You need to have enough pessimism in your thinking that you have enough savings, and uh, you are avoiding debt to a certain degree. That makes it so that when we deal with these inevitable setbacks, you are not forced out of the game. You can remain standing, so that you, and so that when you're remain in the game, that is when you are going to be able to let compounding work in your favor over the long run. I mean, well, practically speaking, you're talking about an, an emergency fund, right? Yeah. Like just that short-term stability. It's, it's that. I think it's a combination of having a, a good emergency fund, which I think, by the way, most people tend to, uh, tend to underestimate how much they're going to need. I mean, mm -hmm. for years, financial advisors would say three to six months. That's what you need. And then something like COVID happens and how many people have been out of work now for six months and have no prospect of going back to work for many more months until there's a vaccine. It was the same thing in 2008 where, you know, financial advisors say, you know, three month emergency fund, but the average duration of unemployment was like 16 months at the period. So there's, I, I do think people tend to underestimate how much cushion they might need in their life. That's to say nothing about medical emergencies or your car breaking down, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think there's also just some level of mindset in there where, I mean, here, here, here's how I'd phrase it. I think the most important financial skill for investors is understanding the long history of volatility and realizing that over the last you know, 100 years in the United States, the stock market has done extremely well. But during that period, uh, the stock market has declined on average 10%, on average once per year. It's declined 20% uh, or more on average, at, at, on average every two to three years. It's declined 30% or more on average at least once per decade. And that's during a period where it did very well. So if you just have a better sense that something can grow and improve and do extraordinarily well over time, even though what's going on in the short run is this constant chain of setback and decline and breakage and destruction, then it just gets a little bit easier to deal with these. And when they come, it's not, it's not that it's fun. It's not that you enjoy watching the setbacks, but it becomes a little bit more palatable. And rather than saying, this feels wrong, something feels broken, you say, look, this isn't fun, but this is what I expect. I know this is what the market tends to do over time. And this is the cost of admissions that you need to pay hmm. in order to achieve the long-term returns. That's the yeah. cost of returns in investing is putting up with uncertainty and volatility and having enough patience to let it work itself out over time. It's all part of the process. And Morgan, when we're talking about a behavioral approach, part of that behavioral approach is uh, the concept of having enough. Uh, you wrote about that in chapter three of your book and, and how it's important to avoid some of the mistakes that we can easily fall into if we have a good concept of what it means to have enough. Uh, near the end of the book, you talk about how you and your wife lived similarly to how you lived right out of college because you were able to stop the goalposts from moving, the goals that you had in your lives. And that seems like it's the, the hardest part of money for most people, that goalposts keep shifting as we continue to grow and age. So how do you think we can become better better at that uh, as we as we grow up and get older? 
it's 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 the hardest but i think most important financial skill is getting the goalposts to stop moving because if you don't if your expectations rise in lockstep with your income or your wealth you're you're on a treadmill for your entire life of course and it's you're always going to think if i only have x dollars more then i will then i will have enough and you're always you're always going to move the goalposts it's never going to end so i think look we talk a lot about how to earn more money and how to do better at investing and that's obviously a very important topic but we also have to talk about how do we manage our expectations because if we don't do that then we should not be surprised when even if we are lucky enough to have a growing income and rising wealth we still don't feel necessarily feel any better off for it so how, how do you do that well i mean first the first thing you have to acknowledge is how ridiculously hard this is because it's the most natural thing in the world to assume that if we have a little bit more we'll be better and by the way that is why the economy grows if everyone in the economy had an idea of look once they earned you know 1 million dollars then they're going to retire and and go live in the woods if everyone had that mentality there'd be no innovation there would be no breakthrough we'd have no economic growth so the fact that no one is ever satisfied by and large in aggregate is actually a great thing for the economy at large but at the individual level to me it's uh, here here's one realization that I that I wrote about in the book when i was in college i was a valet at a really fancy hotel in los angeles uh, it was a great job worked there for 4 years got to interact with a lot of very interesting people <laughs> and so something that dawned on me and I was young I was 19 20 years old at the time but something that would dawn on me that I thought was really interesting is that if someone drove into the hotel driving a ferrari or a lamborghini or a rolls royce or something i would never look at the driver and say wow that guy is cool what i would say instead to myself is if i were in the driver's seat people would think i'm cool and it was this irony that i had of like i don't care about the driver i just want to picture myself as a driver and then assume that people will care about me and it was this weird mm. thing that everyone driving in in the cars probably thought hey these people think i'm cool because i'm driving a lamborghini everyone's looking at me and my realization was like no no one's paying any attention to you they're just imagining themselves in the car assuming that people <laughs> would be paying attention to them and then so to me it's maybe it's this realization that no one is thinking about your stuff no one is thinking about your social status no one cares what you have more than you do no one is thinking about you more than you it's true for everybody and i think once you come to terms with that then it should not be surprising that the material stuff that we want in life which by the way i like nice cars i like nice homes as much as anyone else this is not you know this is not you know let's let's all go 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 pray you know let's this is not to become go monks. live in the woods become monks <laughs> it's nothing like that but uh, it's this realization that the benefit that you get from nice stuff from a social perspective in terms of wanting people to admire you wanting to be people to think you that you're special etc is probably going to be much less than you assume and therefore it just pushes you towards wanting other things in life if you want respect and admiration and and people to think that you're you're great and you're special and you're important then you're much more likely to get that from being a nice person being a humble person being a helpful person than you are from driving a lamborghini uh, and that's i think very hard i think particularly to signal to signal out a group it's particularly hard for young men to understand that. I think they are just much more predisposed to thinking if I do get to drive the Ferrari everyone will think I'm great, everyone will think I'm cool, people will think I'm special and important. Uh and then those are also the group that is I think most likely to overlook the driver and just automatically assume rather than than thinking the driver's cool they just think of themselves as the driver and missing that fundamental irony of what money can actually get you as a benefit. These social pressures, like essentially, they're the problem, right? That can apply to investing as well. You know, like on the note of like social comparison and looking to what others are doing, like how how could that approach negatively impact our ability to invest well? You know, in your book, you talk about identifying what game it is that we're playing. Why yeah. is is that so important? I think it's important because there's this thing that's easy to overlook because it's not very intuitive, which is this: there is only one stock market. and and there's only you know one apple stock that i can buy you can buy hedge fund managers can buy but we're all playing a very different game if you are a day trader uh you are buying apple stock and if you are a fund manager investing for the next 3 months you can buy the same apple stock if you are a retiree or someone who's looking to retire and you're investing for the next 20 years you buy the same stock if you're a endowment fund investing for the next century buy the same stock so we're all on the same field but we're all playing very different games and that's important because a lot of times the movement in the stock market sends signals to other people that other people start paying attention to but if the signals are coming from people who are paying a different game you got to make sure that you are not being influenced those signals let me give you one example from this if you go back to the 1990s when tech stocks were going berserk every day they were going up and up and up 5 10% per day a lot of that movement was just caused by day traders who were capturing short term momentum it made a lot of sense for them to be buying uh Cisco and Yahoo stock 
1999, it made sense for them because they were day traders. It, it didn't matter that the stocks were overvalued in the long run, that they were trading at high priced earnings multiples. None of that matters. They were just trading for that day. They were trying to squeeze out a little bit of money between now and lunchtime. The problem with that is that that activity pushed up the price of those stocks, and it caught the attention of long-term investors. And, and then therefore, if you are someone who was saving for your retirement, you looked at what was happening with Yahoo stock and Cisco stock, and you kind of subconsciously thought to yourself, maybe those people know something I don't. Hey, those stocks are doing well. Maybe those are the companies of the future. Maybe I should invest my retirement money in those stocks. You took your cues from day traders, and that is really where the damage of bubbles came from. Uh, because the day traders, look, they were gone. They were out. And as soon as a bubble, as soon as a bubble started to crack, they sold everything. They were gone. The people who were left holding the bag were the long-term investors who took their cues from those day traders. Uh, so that's just why it's so important to understand what game you're playing and not take your cues from other people. This is special, uh, especially true in financial media, where you know if you turn on CNBC or any other financial program, you will hear people say something along the lines of, you know, you should sell Netflix. It's not a good time to own Netflix stock. And I always want to ask, well, who is that information for? If you're a day trader, maybe that's great advice. If you are a widowed retiree, maybe that's the worst advice you could possibly hear. So it's always presented as if there's only one game to play, as if the stock market were a single unified game. We all have these different goals, different expectations, different time horizons that make it so that we're all playing completely different games than one another. All right, we got just a few more questions for you, Morgan, and we're going to get to uh, those. In particular, we're going to ask you about how you invest, and we'll get to those right after the break. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wise friend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. 
So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. All right, we're here talking with Morgan Housel. And Morgan, let's let's dive into, uh, like Joel alluded to before the break, how it is that you invest. You know, As someone who's been writing about investing for a while now, you take a, a pretty boring index fund approach to your own investments. And so as you've studied the best, you know, you've thought about the subject deeply, like why is your approach you know, kind of the most simple of all? <laughs> I think what most people would assume when they hear that I dollar cost average into index funds, most people would assume that that's because I've come to the conclusion that you cannot beat the market. Market, that no one can do well, that no one can pick winning stocks, et cetera. It's actually not that at all. What, what my view is, is a little bit more nuanced. It's beating the market is possible, but it's extremely hard. And the, the, the statistics that come out that show 90% of fund managers underperform the benchmark, that is usually used as an indictment against the industry. My view is like, no, that's how it should work. It should be hard to beat the market. It there should, are 10% like, what, of people who do a great job of, of beating the market. Just like there are you know, 2 or 3% of college athletes make it to the pros, but no one yeah. says that college athletics are a scam. People will say, look, hmm. it should be hard to make it to the pros. Who, who expects everyone who tries to make the NBA should make it? But that's for some reason, that's effectively how we think about fund managers. So from my perspective, the other thing that I've just come across with, well, I mean, the first thing that, that what I would say as an extension of that is, uh, look, over time, if 90% of investors underperform their, bench, their benchmark, then that means as taking a, pav- a passive approach that over a period of time, I would expect to end up in the top decile, the top 10% of investors. So when people say it's a boring conservative approach, my view is I'm probably going to outperform 90% of fund managers. So which one of us is actually being conservative? Like it's not necessarily, if, if I'm going to earn higher returns than you, then which one of us is actually being conservative here? The other thing that has really stuck out to me that is more important in my passive approach is that the single variable that makes a difference in investing that's going to have the biggest impact on your outcomes as an investor is not how well you do in any given year or even any given decade. It's just how long you invest for. The people who do the best financially over the course of their investing careers are not the people who earn the highest returns, the people who earn decent returns for the longest period of time. So therefore, the, the metric that I want to maximize for is just my endurance. And look, are, do I know people, do I know fund managers who I think will be able to outperform the market this year? Yes. But I don't know if I invested with them, whether I would be able to stick with that for the longest period of time. Whereas for the indexing approach, I think it gives me the highest chance of actually being able to leave it alone and letting it compound for 30 or 40 or 50 more years. That's what I want to do. So it's not that I don't believe people can beat the market. It's that I want to have the, the approach that gives me the highest odds of sticking with it for the longest period of time. And to me, that's just the investment strategy that has the fewest knobs to fiddle with, the fewest levers to pull. And for me, that is the most passive approach that I can take. So I can spend all of my thought, all of my bandwidth focusing on endurance and longevity rather than what is the economy going to do this year or this month. And there was another change you made recently in your life that actually, from what you've said, helped you in that decision. To, helps you stay in the game and to be able to invest over the long over the long haul. Uh, you you paid off your mortgage. You own your home debt free now, and you actually keep more cash on hand than, than most people do. A lot of you know traditional money people would say, "No, man, you should be keep that mortgage. It's at a low interest rate, right. and, and invest more of your money." So why did why did you make that take that safer approach? I mean, there's there's two there's two reasons we did that. One is because, look, I, I have no aspiration to be the greatest investor in the world. What I want to do is use money to make myself and my family a little bit happier, a little bit safer, a little bit more, more well off. So even if we should have used that cash to invest in the stock market versus paying off our mortgage, but paying off our mortgage, it gave us such a sense of security and safety. And this is our house. No one can take this from me. This is our house. We own it. This is, it doesn't matter if the world falls apart, we can withstand a category five financial storm and no one's taking <laughs> this house from us. This is ours. Which uh, th- that to me, it's just that to me that gave my wife and I, particularly since we have young kids, 
that just gave us a sense of like high five. This is one of the best things that we've, even if this is the worst financial decision we've made, I think it's the best money decision that we've ever made. The other thing, if there is a more technical reason for it, is because uh, back to longevity and doing, you know, being able to stay in the game for the longest period of time, you're only going to do that if you become unbreakable financially in the short run. And if once you've paid off your mortgage, which look, this is not something that that everyone or many people can do. I'm, I'm not saying that this is you know something everyone can go out and do. I'm not. I'm not that naive about people's finances. But if you can do that, then you've you reduced your fixed your fixed expenses so much that you give yourself a level of endurity of endurance and 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 durability uh, that I think does pay financial dividends over the long run in the sense that it increases the odds that I can remain invested in my stocks for a longer period of time. And Morgan, as you discussed in the book, retirement, like that's, you know, it's an incredibly new concept. And so until recent decades, you know, the concept of saving up to quit work, like that was mostly foreign. How do you, how do you feel about the way people talk about retirement these days? You know, does it, do you feel it puts a lot of pressure on folks or like, is it even maybe the right goal for individuals to have? I think it's, 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 it's definitely the right, I think what the right goal is, is independence rather than using the term retirement, which implies you're going to quit your job and do nothing else. It's just independence. So there's, there's the fire movement, which, you know, I think is 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 interesting. I, I'm not necessarily part of that myself because rather than you know retiring and leaving work, it's just more about it's the the independence level of it. Um, but what's interesting about finance, about retirement that you mentioned is yeah, it's a fairly new concept. I mean, up until kind of the 1940s and 50s, the majority of people worked until they died. There was no sense of retirement. Social Security didn't didn't didn't, didn't come along until the 1930s, uh, and even when it came along, it was a absolutely bare bones, way less even adjusted for inflation than people get today. So the concept that the majority of people uh, will be able to and deserve a retirement that will last years or decades is a very new concept. We're talking 30 or 40 years into this that we've had. I mean, the Roth IRA didn't come about until 1998, and the 401k really didn't start being used in real ways until the early 1990s. So these things are, are more or less brand new. And that's important because we don't have a lot of generational knowledge transfer in terms of your parents teaching you how to do it because their parents taught them how to do it. We're, we're dealing with these things that are one generation old. So we are, ba- we are, we are all newbies. We are all freshmen doing this. <laughs> it, it should make sense that if you take something that we'd have no generational experience doing, and then we are dealing with the emotions of trillions upon trillions of dollars of our retirement and our future well-being, it should not surprise people that people screw up a lot of times doing this. We're brand new at this. Very different if you take something like driving a car, let's say. My parents taught me how to drive a car. Their parents taught them how to drive a car, et cetera. <laughs> Whereas right now, we're just coming into this. I think this also affects something like saving for college, where if you go back 40 years ago, uh, A, fewer people uh, wanted to go to college, or the, the, the expectation that you would go to college was just much lower than it is today. And colleges adjusted for inflation were much cheaper. So the idea of saving a significant amount of money for your kids to go to college was just not really part of the social conversation. And that kind of led to, I think, my generation. I'm, 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 I'm 36 years old. So it was kind of my parents' generation that did not, by and large, did not save for their kids' college because in, when they were growing up, what their parents taught them was you don't need to. It's just not something that you are that, – that's not, that's not part of the, the, the financial quiver. So it was kind of my generation that I think will get stuck with the highest level of student debt because our parents didn't prepare for it. And I don't blame them for that because they didn't have any, any kind of generational knowledge transferred to them. And I think if you look at my generation, how we're dealing with our kids, I think we learned from our personal experiences that – trauma and tragedy of excessive student debt. And we are by and large, I'm generalizing here saying, never will we put our own kids through that. So we have a much higher degree of savings in 529 plans for our own children going forward. So that too, it's just like a generational difference that it's not that one one generation screwed up or wasn't smart enough to do it. It's just what we've experienced in our own lives that gives us this roadmap of what we are expected to do with our money. Plus, by the way, I think part of the reason our parents didn't save as much for college is because th- the price wasn't nearly as extreme. That's uh, right. 30, yeah. 30 years ago, right? And I mean, so I mean, now. Particularly at we, state universities. Most state colleges, right. if you go back to the 70s and 80s, were free. They were tuition free. You could, you could go to them. That was a big shift that took place to say nothing of, of private universities that we kind of have a growing expectation that you know if you get into Pepperdine, you should go to Pepperdine whether you can afford it or not. Uh, so I think that expectation didn't, by and large, didn't exist 40 years ago. Plus, you had the the state college kind of uh, safety net where you could go tuition free. Yeah, yeah. Well, we covered a lot here, Morgan. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, but we got one last question for you. What is the most practical action step you'd recommend for folks to take in order to move from knowing the right things to do with their money to doing the right things? 
you got to know yourself. Just be more introspective about what you're uh, about who you are. And rather than reading a financial book, even though I just wrote one, so I'm speaking against myself here. <laughs> rather than reading a finance book to try to figure out what you should do with your money, you should become more introspective about yourself, your own goals, your family's goals, and realizing that personal finance is way more personal than it is finance. Well, Morgan, this has been a fantastic conversation. We really appreciate your time. And uh, where can folks find out more about you and your book? Most of what I do, well, the, the, the book is on Amazon. It's called The Psychology of Money. Most of what I do on a day-to-day basis, I spend my time on Twitter. My handle is Morgan Housel, first and last name. Awesome. Morgan, thanks so much, man. It's been a great conversation. We really appreciate your time. This has been fun. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks again, Morgan. Uh, Joel, man, what a great conversation we just had here with Morgan Housel discussing his his new book, The Psychology of Money. We talked through a ton of different stuff, man. He had a lot of nuggets of wisdom, but we always end our interviews here with one big takeaway. And so I want to get your big takeaway. What was what was something that stood out to you? Yeah, that's a tough one because this interview was <laughs> was packed with a bunch of stuff, just like the book is. Honestly, yeah. it's just it's a heavy hitter with just so much good information, so many good stories. It's just incredibly well written. And, and but I think the the biggest takeaway that I got from this episode was, and it was when I was reading the book, it, it really struck me too. Don't try to overcome your flaws. Know them and embrace them. The emotional aspects of our personalities. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that you know we want to change, we want to do better, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something really powerful. Uh, about knowing ourselves deeply, realizing that those flaws exist, and knowing that, that we can't necessarily change them completely, and so we adjust accordingly. Uh, when it comes to in- investing or saving or how we think about our money, we need to incorporate uh, some of those baseline tendencies that we have. We need to think about our personality a little bit more, and we need to bring that to the table when we're thinking about the, the decisions we're going to make. Morgan did that when he paid off his mortgage. Morgan does that when he invests in index funds. So much of personal finance is personal, and a lot of it does come down to you and how you interact with the world around you and with your money in particular. Yeah, I mean, that's why we enjoy talking about money so much because it's so nuanced depending on who it is you're talking about and, right. and as we're kind of covering each topic. I love the example he gave too. Like, essentially, he was talking about like if you panicked back in the spring when the market, you know, completely nosedived, uh, that you probably need to be maybe be in something that's a little more conservative, right? But in my mind, I was thinking about how my tendencies are, are kind of the opposite. And I realized that essentially this system I've set up gives myself some flexibility because I know that like my tendency is that when, when I see an opportunity, uh, when I see something on sale, I'm going to pounce. Uh, and th- I mean, that happened back in the spring. I've, I've kind of laid out at one point, like my complex system of if the market is you know more than 10% down, this is how much I can kind of put towards it. It can free you up to make some, some purchases and make some movements while sticking to a system that you've essentially predetermined. It's when you let your emotions get the best of you and you start making unwise decisions in the moment uh, that can really, yeah, really bite you in the but well, you've also been conservative in other areas of your financial life that allow you to be more aggressive there. And again, sure, sure. That, that save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist, that's like the best yeah. line. So good. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it, it makes so much sense to me. I love it. Yeah. So my big takeaway too also had to do with investing. And he, he said a line and he said that volatility is the cost of admission to investing in the stock market. And that's a perfect summary of the, the, the market in the short term, right? If you are going to invest for the long term, you know, if you have a more optimistic view of the market, which we do, you know, we see the economy and progress. We see all these things happening and moving forward. But what that means is in the short term, there's going to be volatility and you have to be okay with that. That's the price you pay in order to invest. That's so important to keep in mind when you do see big fluctuations in the market, uh, that they're not something necessarily to respond to, to, to react negatively to, uh, and, and instead just to kind of weather that storm. Yeah, it's not broken. He said it's part of understanding the long history of volatility. Exactly. It's the way the system works and it's part of wealth building. That volatility is essentially built in and you're going to experience it from time to time. And that's part of behavior again. You have to know that that's going to happen and know how you react to that so that you can invest accordingly. And I think it's why index funds can be so helpful for us uh, because it's uh, one less decision we actually have to make. And I know for me, I'm not really great when I have a lot of decisions. Uh, so so that takes care of one for me right there. Uh, all right, Matt, let's get back to the beer that we had on the show today. Today, we drank a beer called Polygamy Porter by Wasatch Brewery. <laughs> <laughs> this is a beer, of course, out of Utah. Our friend Sam, who works for the brewery, sent this one our way. Uh, great little Utah pun in the name of this beer. Yeah, I think they're kind of poking fun a little bit at polygamy. Uh, but yeah, this is a beer that you and I got to share. I'll go ahead and say that uh, as you pour it, obviously it poured nice and dark. This is a porter. Uh, it was lighter in body. You know, it wasn't one of these dark beers that, that's, that's really heavy but it did have those darker flavors. So you kind of had that nice, light, roasty flavor going on. You got some of those chocolate notes as well. 
I feel like this is the perfect beer as the weather starts to turn a little bit colder, uh, where you can get some of those darker flavors without feeling like you're eating a meal, you know, when you have a beer. So yeah, those bigger stouts can feel like that, but but this one doesn't, right? Yeah, exactly. it's a little bit light. I feel like it was chocolate, caramel. It was really smooth uh, and, and just had a great flavor going on. Uh, so, yeah, really enjoyed this one from Wasatch Brewery. Big thanks to Sam again for sending this one our way. All right, Matt, that's going to do it for this episode. For people who want show notes, including a link to Morgan's book, that'll be up on our website at howtomoney.com. And if you have a friend or you know somebody who might benefit from hearing an episode like this, talking about the psychology of money, we would be incredibly thankful if you forwarded this episode along to them. Reviews always help, but you know what? Word of mouth is also a really good thing. So thanks in advance for that. Joel, that's going to be it for this episode, buddy. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.